This is Theology Refresh. I'm David Mathis. Our topic is definite atonement, and joining us is Doug Wilson. Doug, thank you for being here. Good to be with you. Thanks. Um, let's jump right in on definite atonement. Tell us, what does that mean? What's this theological word? Definite atonement refers to the, the teaching uh, of Reformed theology that Jesus died in order to secure the salvation of the elect. So uh, the death of Jesus in this view is efficacious. It actually accomplishes the, uh, accomplishes the salvation as opposed to the more generally widespread notion that Jesus died to make the salvation of anyone possible. Mm -hmm. So definite atonement says that Jesus died to save or to secure the salvation of as opposed to Jesus died to create possibilities. Yes. Other terms that definite atonement is talked about? Definite atonement is, is frequently uh, called limited atonement. Um, that, that comes out of the famous tulip acros uh, acrostic. The problem with limited atonement is uh, that it makes everybody think tiny atonement. Mm -hmm. um, if someone says, I believe in limited atonement, and the other person says, well, I believe in unlimited atonement, well, who sounds more biblical? Yeah. Well, Jesus died for the sins of the world. Unlimited atonement sounds more biblical. But if someone says, I believe in definite atonement, and the other person says, well, I believe in indefinite, well, <laughs> that doesn't sound nearly as biblical. Where does this theological doctrine come from, historically, uh, well, in biblical texts? Well, his historically, um, the, the teachings of the Reformation grew and spread throughout Europe, uh, or the Protestant portions of Europe. And then uh, a Reformed pastor named Jacob Arminius uh, in the Netherlands began teaching some things that were contrary to the received orthodoxy. And his followers, the Arminians, followers of Arminius, presented, they were called the Remonstrants, and they presented five points of concern about the prevailing Reformed orthodoxy. And the Synod of Dort met to consider their appeals and then answered the five points of Arminianism with what, have, what historically has become to, come to be known as the five points of Calvinism. And the, the definite nature of the atonement it was, is sort of the centerpiece of that. And what it boils down to really is if you, if you take the famous acrostic of total depravity on one end and perseverance of the saints on the other, those, those are the two bookends. But the middle is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's the work of the Trinity. So elections, what the Father does, atonement is what the Son did, and the efficacious call, the resurrecting grace, irresistible grace is sometimes called, is the work of the Spirit. Well, what refor historic Reformed Orthodoxy does is assume Trinitarian harmony and unity in all uh, three places. So you don't have Jesus trying to save people that the Father didn't elect, mm -hmm. and you don't have the Spirit trying to regenerate people that the Son didn't die for. Mm -hmm. yeah. So the Father chose, the Son secured by His death, and the Spirit resurrects by His resurrecting power. Which uh, text do we point to to support definite atonement? Um, I lay down my life for the sheep, for example. Um, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And when you, when you consider the nature, of the, the, the nature of the atonement, sometimes people think that Jesus died for the elect and Jesus died for the world, or Jesus, Jesus died for the elect and Jesus died for everybody in the world. If you believe in such a thing as hell or damnation, if, you, if you're not a universalist, if you believe some people are saved and some people are lost, the real difference is not uh, world, ver elect versus world. 
the real difference is what this does to the word for. Mm. When you say Jesus died for the elect, mm -hmm. or Jesus died for everybody in the world, that word means something completely different in both instances. Because in the Reformed view, Jesus died to secure the salvation of the elect. And in the latter instance, the for means Jesus died in order to make possible the salvation. And uh, I think it was B.B. Warfield had a great illustration of this. He said, what would you rather have? Would you rather have a narrow bridge that went all the way across the chasm or a great wide bridge that everybody could fit on that went halfway across? <laughs> this is the most contested of the yes. so-called five points. Yes. Any reflections on why that's the case? Well, for me, as I was coming into um, the Reformed faith, as I was working through this, it was the stumbling block for me. I, I love the idea of God being in control. I love the idea of God's sovereignty. I love the idea of God excluding chance. But I just stumbled over um, um, the, this doctrine. And I think there's two, two reasons for it. One is maybe more noble than the other. Uh, the less noble is that it, it's just like all the doctrines of grace, humbling to our pride. You know, we want to, we want to add our power, our choice, our choosing to the blood of Jesus to make it work, to make it go. And this, like everything else, just, just humbles us. No, we didn't do anything. Jesus just saved us. But the, the other, perhaps more noble reason, and, um, is that there are many universal texts when it talks about the atonement. So I, I cited um, uh, the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep and, and husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. There are those specific definite texts. Mm. But you also have expansive universal texts. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. First uh, John 2, he's the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So what do you, what do, you do with those grand, glorious, universal texts that are directly linked to the death of Jesus? Mm -hmm. How is that consistent with definite atonement? And um, the short answer, this, this complicates the discussion somewhat because it hauls another set of doctrines in. But for me, that was addressed by, the, by um, me becoming a post-millennialist before I became a Calvinist. Um, because I had become a post-millennialist, I believed that the world will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Um, so if I, uh, to, just to illustrate, um, if I say that uh, I, I saw it went to the fireworks display and, and, and all of Minneapolis was there, right? Well, if you said, oh, I drove by the field there and it was just you and Mrs. Grundy and her dog, and if you said, well, yeah, but we're the only ones that count, well, that's an abuse of all of Minneapolis, right? <laughs> but if everybody was there except for Mrs. Grundy and her dog, mm -hmm. right, then that's a generalization that, that fits, right? So if I say Jesus uh, died to save the world, as a post-millennialist, I believe he did. I believe the world is elect. That doesn't deny the doctrine of hell. There are people who are lost, but they are... Um, they are excluded from humanity. They're excluded from the world by their loss, by their damnation. So I think the word world in a universal post-millennial context is consistent with the language and it's consistent with definite atonement. If, if you believe that, uh, as I, I remember picking up a book by one gentleman, uh, Calvinist, before I was a Calvinist, and I said, I wonder what he's gonna do with John 3.16, God's love the world. 
Well, he said, well, this means elect. But if you couple that with, and the elect are 16, 17 people tops, <laughs> then that's a bizarre use of the it word is. world, right? But if, the, um, but if you have an expansive view of the word world, so John in, in Revelation, uh, when it lists 12,000 from every tribe, um, I heard 12,000 from this tribe and 12,000 from this tribe. And then John says, and then I turned and looked and saw a multitude that no man can number. If you say, how many people are, this definite atonement, how many people are involved in being purchased by that definite atonement? If the answer is, you can't count that high, a multitude that no one can number, then that qualifies as world. Right? That, that's an honest use of the word world, and it's a definite atonement, and you don't have Jesus dying in a vain attempt to save Judas Iscariot, but Judas wasn't having any. Mm -hmm. uh, Jesus doesn't fail yes. in, in his atonement. So when he cries out, it is finished, he's not crying out, it is started, or, or let's see what they do with this. Yeah. He says, yeah. it's finished. Yeah. I, I didn't expect the connection, the post-millennial eschatology. Okay. Well, you should expect that connection. <laughs> You're talking <laughs> to me. I'm, I, I, haul it in, I haul it into everything. You mentioned <laughs> earlier they were chatting about a connection with penal substitution. Yes. Uh, what is penal substitutionary atonement, and how does that relate to the atonement being definite? Penal substitution comes from the Latin poena, meaning penalty. So when Jesus Christ paid the penalty, there's two main... Uh, metaphors that scripture uses. One is uh, the sentence of justice, uh, like a criminal court, the penal substitution. The other is the payment of a debt. All right, so you've got a, and both metaphors are used in, in scripture. Uh, I believe that penal substitution necessitates definite atonement, just by the nature of the case. You, you don't have, uh, you could have, if, if the only illustration we had in scripture was the the uh, commercial, the, the debtor one, then it makes sense for someone to put a bunch of money on deposit and say, anybody who comes um, can draw on this account and pay your debts with it. But if it's a criminal execution, right, which the death of Jesus has all the trappings, all the characteristics, all the attributes of, a, of an execution, he's paying a penalty. Um, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, as Isaiah says, then that is awfully hard to put in the bank, <laughs> right? If, if Jesus is my representative in dying for me, then double jeopardy issues come up, right? If Jesus died to take my penalty, then why does anybody go to hell? If, if you believe in penal substitution, how, how is it possible for someone for whom Jesus died, to go to hell? Well, the answer is that's commonly given is because of their unbelief. And I'd say, well, is that unbelief a sin? Yeah. Did Jesus die for it? <laughs> yes or no? Well, if Jesus died for it, then why is he going to hell? Mm. If Jesus didn't die for it, and he's lost because of that one sin of unbelief that Jesus didn't die for, then you don't believe in, uh, you, you don't believe in the universal... Uh, typical universal uh, uh, view of the atonement. Right. How about uh, practicality with this doctrine? Uh, how does it affect the Christian in, the, in our life on the ground, so to speak? I think the first immediate place of application would be how it affects preachers. So 
preacher, uh, and I don't think preachers ought to preach the definite atonement uh, by saying, and I have my doubts about whether Jesus died for you. Yes, you, the third, in the, in the back row there. <laughs> I don't think that that's how it works because we're not given that information. But the preacher of the gospel, when he preaches a definite atonement, I think feels like he's taken the sword out of its scabbard. You know, it's, it's not like you're whacking people. It's something, it's the word of God is living and active and can, and slices. So if you believe that the, the, the preaching of the gospel is precise, then I think it can pierce people to the heart. Good. Uh, in particular, you already mentioned preaching, but uh, other counsel for leaders in regards to the definite atonement. Um, don't be uh, embarrassed about it, right? It, it, it does draw opposition and anger and people are distressed. And it's very easy for preachers to become sort of whispering Calvinists. Yeah. They, they're Calvinists in the study. And yeah, I believe that, but I would never preach it mm. because people get upset. And um, So I would encourage people to have the courage of their convictions. That's good. Thank you for joining us. Would you close us in prayer? Sure. Our Father and God, we thank you for our time here uh, uh, this evening. We commit the, these words to you and ask that you would use them, apply them as you see fit. I pray that there would be uh, people out there who are edified and strengthened by them. In Jesus' name, amen.